it really starts with self-awareness and your own thinking. These things tend to crop up in stressful situations or you see them more clearly after the event often. But actually in reality, it's about just reacting better in the moment and making the next moment better and not trying to extend it out, which is really interesting. Hi, it's Paul. Welcome to the Pylon Ultra Pod. We are at the end of Series 5 now and have already finished the shorter sprint episodes, which we hope you've been enjoying. We wanted to try and deliver some really useful and thought-provoking episodes in the shorter series, so that with just a 10-minute or less listen, you could walk away with something to think about for the rest of your day or week or longer, depending on how useful any of it was. So after the five thought biases we covered across the series, we promised to do a longer episode where James and I could chat through in more detail how these distortions affect us and using some of your feedback, how they affect you too. So learning from each other and hopefully germinating some new ways to tackle the daily challenges that we all face. So before I start talking through the thought biases, let's get James on now. If you haven't listened to the short episodes already, I suggest you hit stop and go listen to them first. Huge thanks to everyone who provided some feedback. Here's episode six of the Pylon Ultra Pod. Hi James, how are you doing? We've been like ships in the night passing over recording duties each week. It's nice to get back on a call with you. What's been happening? Uh, yeah, I mean, ships in the night, or has is, is it been like, I don't know, thought bias tennis? Is that a new sport? Where, where, <laughs> you know, it's, it's serving, serving volley on all or nothing. I've been really yeah, good, mate. Um, really, really good. I think since the last time we spoke, we've had some races, some good training, and lots of positivity about lots of things happening. So yeah, I'm, I'm in a really good space, man. How are you? I'm okay, mate. I'm okay. I've been in Scotland for a bit, still haven't been back to Sham um, for various reasons, but yeah, I'm okay. I'm okay, mate. It's been been a busy time with work stuff and everything else, and uh, I've joined you on the puppy front too, James, so that's been a challenge. Yeah, yeah, cute as. And, and, and is Maya already out running the odd mile or so with you? Did I see photos of that? Uh, we're not supposed to run her for another, whatever it is, nine months or something, yeah. so it's, it's going to be a long time, but uh, yeah, yeah, she runs a bit, she's pretty fast already, faster than me, so that's going to be interesting. Yeah, yeah, well, um, unfortunately, um, as you say, you've joined me in the puppy front, the, the possibility of taking Nugget, and this is maybe <laughs> all or nothing thinking, there is no way <laughs> Nugget would ever go a run, because he's 10 yards, then he's wanting to fight, and he's wanting to play, so uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I envy you and having a dog that will eventually be able to run with you in time. Yeah, to be fair, she likes a fight as well, James, so, <laughs> so maybe they'd get on. <laughs> Let's bring them together, and we'll, we'll film it, <laughs> brilliant. Exactly. Uh, right, so the reaction to uh, the last series, or the current series of the podcast, has been really great. Um, I think for us, it was certainly worth taking a new approach to it. And now I think we just have the difficult task of pulling it all together and maybe talking through why we find these thought biases so difficult to control and to manage. So before we do that, James, I'm putting you on the spot now. Do you fancy giving us maybe a brief summary of the five that we looked at, if you can remember them? And I'll fill oh, in the God, gaps I'm, if you I'm, don't. I'm on the spot, right? So number one was mind reading. You kicked off the, the, yeah, the series right. with mind reading. Yep. Um, and then number two was egocentric thinking. Um, yep. And I might have the order quite uh, wrong here. Number three was overgeneralization. 
Um, yeah. Number four was all or nothing or must and shoulds, and number five was must and shoulds are all or nothing. I can't remember quite That's the right. order. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah. yeah, that was the, kind of the order. We done them in that order intentionally, right? So what what am I thinking? What are other people thinking about me? And then actually, what's happening as a result of that thinking? Um, but yeah, those were the five topics. So why why in your mind do you think it's important to talk about these things and and maybe improve your own self awareness? Well fundamentally any growth and development in my very humble opinion and having worked as a um, a learning professional for a number of years now it really starts with self-awareness and your own thinking because that's then where your actions are going to come from for good or ill Um, and if you have some sort of increased awareness of what you're thinking and some control over the reactions to that thinking and whether it be to change your thinking or to react and act in a um, in the right and positive way then I think your outcomes are going to be better more often than not. But fundamentally starts with if you don't know who you are, why you think the way you think and the implications of that thinking, then in theory you could be chasing the ghost with the actions you then take afterwards. So that's why I think it's super important. Yeah, I think it seems to be key to everything, doesn't it? Self-awareness. It, it's, it's run through almost every podcast we've done, I think, in the background somewhere. Um, I got a message from Crawford. and I thought I'd play James and you can give me your thoughts on it once I've hit play hi paul and james first of all i just want to say thank you for the ultra podcast it's really been an eye-opener for me and since i started listening to it it's really made me think on a much deeper level not only just about running but life in general and it's actually really helped in my professional life as well and i think the big takeaway i've had from your sprint series is that it's become a little bit of a mental health toolkit I think episode one when we were talking when you were talking about mind reading, I've shared that with a couple of the colleagues I'm coaching at the minute, just to help them settle themselves in situations when they're talking to people or dealing with uh, are dealing with situations they're not used to. I think it stops the overthinking aspect of it, which is really fantastic. Also, just the last one there about the fact that it's not all or nothing and that we can always take something positive from the biggest failures and I think that is really going to help shape my mindset while I'm training for my first marathon. Thank you very much, Crawford. Wow, that's the, that, I think that's the, the, the first time I've heard that um, played back and I think there's a couple of really important points to pick out from that. So, so first of all, um, thanks Crawford for sending in your thoughts. At its most fundamental, what we I guess we try to achieve with this podcast is just to try and disrupt people's thinking and in the hope that they'll do some more positive outcome or more positive activity on the back of it. And of course, we do it from the bias of talking about running because that's the sport we're passionate about and the, the, the thing we're, we're involved in. But what you've seen from Crawford there is is a really good example of how it's kind of a whole ecosystem of um, development and it's a whole ecosystem of being. So uh, if you've got a thought bias that's affecting you from a work point of view, i.e. you think someone thinks you're not good enough at your job, the chances are that will leak over into how people view you as an athlete or a runner or, or, or whatever. So I think what Crawford shared there was really really quite i'm not going to say profound because that sounds like we're kind of getting into buddhist territory but what i mean by that is is it's really humbling to hear that actually some of the lessons and sprints that we've been doing are getting used in a very much a non-work context but actually in an overall growth development 
And the word I would use more than anything else where Crawford came from there was a harmonious context, i.e. to try and stop that negative thinking, i.e. what someone else thinks something about me, therefore the action I'm going to take is in reaction to something that, that isn't actually, doesn't exist. But we're actually working on real and true data by sensing and seeing that mind reading, pausing, stopping for thought, and then actually try to correct course. So it's a really good example of how powerful and almost links to that introduction I did, Paul, about why self-awareness is so important. He's helping others gain that as well. And if we're all more self-aware, even if it's things that we don't like about ourselves or others don't, we know then when to dial up or dial down those traits in, in the right situations. So that's a really good good example. Yeah, I mean, I don't think any anything that we've talked about is us reinventing the wheel. You know, it's they're actually quite simple concepts, but I found them to be a really good reminder and because we've kept things short and snappy you can quickly notice things through the week you know like a day after you've listened to the podcast you, you tend to notice some things maybe like you said in a work environment or you notice it when you're going out training or even just the way that you talk to yourself when you're training um, it's been really useful so um, I think rather than run just run through them sequentially like we did in the sprints I think we could maybe do these in order of where you think there's potentially the easiest and biggest return for you. The athletes you coach are just generally the one that you see most commonly in your work life. We also have a few more messages from listeners uh, which I'd like to throw in as we go through too. And maybe just to kick us off, James, I'll play one from Joe, which you probably haven't heard yet either. Um, I really like this series, actually. And... Um- more than anything, I find that it's been really useful helping me to coach the guys at work because things come up and I recognise it. Like, I've got a technician who's doing a modern apprenticeship and part of that he's doing a day release at college to get some qualifications. And he said to me this week that he thinks he's failing one of the modules because he doesn't get chemistry. And because of that, he feels like he's letting the whole team down and that he's rubbish at college and that he's going to fail the whole course and I thought that's overgeneralization everyone has ups and downs and then the all or nothing one I think that really resonated with me because I'm definitely a person who if I miss a session or do something badly at the start of the week I find it really hard to pull the whole week back and I'll just think to myself I'll start next week again and I often find myself saying to people go big or go home and that's maybe not so helpful all the time. First of all, um, I think what what's good there is again taking the skills we're learning as athletes and taking it into a work context. But also, Joe made the the, the point about back to athlete life as well. I.e., I basically don't do well on the Monday, so I write off the rest of that week, and that's a classic bit of all or nothing, or I'll get to it Monday. You know, I mean, I'm really prone to that when I, when I'm in the midst of like a 16 week training block, I'll start to eat more cleanly. You know, you'll avoid more of the. You basically just you just sharpen up the things that matter, but sometimes you might go, I'm, you know what, you maybe have something on a Wednesday or something that you might not be best for you. And you just go, you go on tilt for a few days because you're like, I'll just start again Monday. But actually, in reality, it's about just reacting better in the moment and making the next moment better and not trying to extend it out, which is really interesting. And and I think the way Joe described the overgeneralization conversation is an absolute case in point. No one had told that individual they were letting the team down or they were struggling or anything like that. It was an assumption made in their own mind. They mind read over it and then they overgeneralize the overgeneralized outcome of it. You can see how the the thought biases actually roll over into each other. And I guess you probably experienced that, Paul, when we were going through them and recording them. 
I think so. There's a couple for me that really crossed over uh, just in my own life. So maybe as a good starting point then, just based on Joe's message, uh, we maybe talk about all or nothing thinking. It's the one I think I spoke about initially in the sprints. And I think it's probably one of the most common ones, certainly amongst our listeners and people that are maybe training regularly. It seems to be quite prevalent. Um, So all or nothing thinking, obviously being thinking in extremes. So what you do is either a success or a failure. Your performance was really good or it was really bad. If you're not perfect, then you're a disaster. And I gave that example of just one long run, not going to plan. And then people being really quick to think that they're, I'm really unfit, I'm really unhealthy, I'm really overweight and training is just a waste of time and effort. Um, from our conversation after that episode went out, I know that's one for you as well, James. And um, I was interested to think about how that crops up for you in your life, this all or nothing thinking. When you're someone who is especially good at finding positives in every kind of setback or challenge in your life, you know, if, see, if I, see if I talk in a work context um, on that. So you're, you're absolutely right. Um, I tend to always try and accentuate the positive. I'm really confident solutions can be found. I rely a lot on my adaptability and my agility to solve a problem. So I never find a problem and think, oh God, how am I going to deal with this? What I often find is, is I've got a problem. And then what I tend to do though is, is where my all or nothing thinking comes in is that massive strength of mine. Sometimes your greatest strength can be your greatest weakness. So my greatest strength might be I'm solution orientated, I'm really creative, I'm fast moving, um, I'm always confident I can fix things. But what that sometimes leads me to do, it keeps it means I've got a blind spot. Sometimes I don't ask for help enough because I think well nobody else can do it to the either the standard or the way I want. And I'm not talking about high standard, just the way I want. Um, so I just shut off avenues of opportunity. Now, it doesn't mean I don't get a solution that's workable and good, but actually my all or nothing thinking means that sometimes I become too self-reliant and I don't look beyond what's in my own mind because I think, well, I'm the best person to solve this and off I go, rather than thinking, would that be better just stepping back from this? So sometimes I can be my own worst enemy with that, Paul, and I actually find that even more so when I'm under stress and I think that's where thought biases can sometimes show up because... I'm sometimes like, oh, it's just quicker to do it myself and to try and explain it to someone else and get them to put their slant interpretation on it and then I need to review it. And I've seen me sitting sometimes late at night doing someone else's work for them because essentially it's my failing for not being confident enough in myself to be able to both explain and delegate properly rather than their failing for not being able to understand and move at the same pace as me. Does that Does that make sense? It does, yeah. Is that all or nothing thinking though? Or is that something else? Like, uh... Yeah, maybe maybe there's maybe there's um, elements of all three all three of the first three we did right, which is your overgeneralization, mm-hmm. your mind reading, and egocentric thinking coming into that as well. Yeah. Like, nobody's yeah. as good as me, yeah, yeah. and um, that's your overgeneralization. A bit of mind reading thinking they'll not get it, and they probably won't want to do it, and they won't do it at the same level. <laughs> and then a bit of overgeneralization about both me and them, yeah. So. Again, I think it's a good a good challenge on how these things can actually manifest in multiple different ways in the same scenario. Yeah, Sarah got in touch with a really nice way of thinking about all or nothing thinking. About the all or nothing thinking, and I've got a principle that I've used through the years that I think is a really useful way of looking at um, looking at it. If you're driving your car to a destination and one of your tires burst. You wouldn't stop the car and put, burst the other 
three tyres. You wouldn't you wouldn't take a knife to the three tyres and say, oh, well, my journey's ruined now. I might as well stay here. You just wouldn't do that. And that's that's the way we tend to think about things. Oh, well, I've ruined it now. The whole week's ruined. Well, no. The same as if you had a bouquet of 12 red roses, one of the flowers died. You wouldn't take a pair of scissors to the other 11 flowers. Um, so you've got to think about, it, like the car journey, if you're trying to get somewhere and one of your tyres bursts, what you actually do is you fix the tyre or you call someone to help you fix the tyre and you crack crack on you get on with your journey and head to your destination and i do think that's a kind of a good way to think about the all or nothing oh well i've done this wrong so the whole thing is now ruined it's not like that that's deep paul what do you think of that uh yeah i quite like the analogy i I don't think it's necessarily like it's almost for me it would be and i've been in similar situations sometimes on travel so you talked earlier about these things tend to crop up in stressful situations or you see them more clearly after the event often. But I've had a real nightmare with travel and I'm trying to get out here, out of the UK to go somewhere to get ready for a race or whatever. You have a total nightmare with it. I almost get to the point, I think, what is the point? I just don't want to do this anymore. So it's not like I'm further sabotaging what's going on, but it almost feels like you've taken the shine off it now. What's the point? I'm not going to do it. And, and for me, that's where kind of all or nothing thinking tends to go for me sometimes um, because you've maybe set yourself up this really clear expectations of how things are going to pan out and then when it doesn't go that way I have that tendency sometimes I don't I don't necessarily do it but I certainly have that thinking I think what's the point it's not the way it's going that I wanted it to be now so I'm just gonna I'm gonna forget about it or, or find a different thing to do um, so I, I quite liked it I quite liked the way of thinking about it it does simplify things a wee bit it it really does. Um, it does. I mean, you could take it to a running context, right? You could use the example of if I don't finish this 10K in under 40 minutes, it's a failure. But then you finish it in under 40 minutes despite the fact that you went over on your ankle or you fell and you tripped. And then you go, well, actually, that's a success in those circumstances. But if you're prone to all or nothing thinking, it's 40 minutes or, or nothing, you know, that kind of classic this or bust type mindset um, which sometimes we talk about it's almost like what Joe was saying earlier about go big or go home when in reality it's like try and go big get as close as you can and take the learning from it and enjoy the journey Um, which is not it's not as it doesn't roll off the tongue quite as good as go big or go home does it but it's kind of like how and it can be difficult to frame that because probably the only person who cares sometimes about our performances as athletes is us we think people are tracking us on the dot watching and judging us because we might be 10 minutes off the pace that they've no idea we're aiming for because they don't. Um, and yet we start to put the pressure of that expectation on ourselves. And, and in all or nothing thinking as well, that was sort of result, um, results and performance or, orientated. From a running point of view, another good example might be I mean, you had it at Bartley one year, didn't you, where you dropped your you dropped your water bottles and you lost mm-hmm. some of your nutrition mm-hmm. and you're like, oh my God, that, you know, you could be thinking that's my race ruined now rather yeah. than thinking, oh, well, I'm going to have to adapt to this situation. I'm not going to overgeneralize and say that's it done. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to re reimagine my effort and my relationship with the race so that I can make the best of a bad situation. Um, but in that moment when you're in a high pressure situation the loss is something like a bottle or nutrition you know you drop a gel when you're in a marathon and you go to reach for it and you can't have it that can be enough just to cause you to put the brakes on or to to look for reasons to stop or to reduce effort 
you briefly mentioned food earlier for you maybe is that something yeah. that you, you get, can get caught up in because it's a classic one for people who regularly diet for example it's a classic isn't it it's almost a joke that oh, well, I'll start again on Monday because they had a, a rubbish day at work on the Thursday and they bought a pizza or whatever on the Thursday and then the rest of the weekend is, is written off and I'll start again on Monday yeah I mean I am I, um, I mean for people listening who don't know before I started running I was grossly unhealthy and overweight you know and a lot of that was down to a really really bad habit um habits and food choices and, it, and i'm by no means anywhere near perfect on that and it's taken me a long time to be comfortable with that right so i don't sit every night weighing you know grams of brown rice out on the, the, the scale so i get more comfortable with it and partly through working with Rini, who some of us know on this um on this podcast on partly through reading up on it and getting comfortable with it it's taken me a long time but i still have some of those impulses that you know where you see it where if you have a biscuit you end up having four biscuits because you're like i might as well as just you know that's me i've broken that abstinence so i might as well as just break it in style and i, I think yeah. i can still be prone to that from a food point of view which is why i then discipline myself to try and be a wee bit more controlled through the periods leading up to races and main events and, but the flip of that is, Paul, I listened to a brilliant podcast on this. Um, I, I can't quite remember who it was that said it, but it was a top nutritionist in the States. And she was saying, look, if you just look at it every day and think, is 90% of what I'm consuming really, really, really good? You know, good, healthy grains, mm -hmm. greens, you know, calcium, getting the right level of protein in me and the right level of carbs. And if you're doing that and you have the odd chocolate biscuit, then you're going to be on the right side of doing well. But if you start to stress and you do seven days of 100% abstinence and then your eighth day is a total disaster, then chances are you'll never get out that habit of being able to control your impulses. And I found that really helpful. So it allows you to forgive yourself, if if that's even the right phrase, because that feels a wee bit um, thought biasy. Yeah. But it allows you to at least um, recognise when one slip doesn't, create a, a, a you know a deadly fall and i guess it's the same thing it's like it's the same thing it's not oh god i've i've eaten something i probably didn't want to at this stage or i've had a an extra beer too many or whatever it might be that's me off the you know what's it you call it off the rails you're just going yeah. i just need to correct course i think sometimes that's the thing we thought biases where if you don't recognize where you're starting to um almost go on to tilt with a thought bias you lose the opportunity to correct course early enough in the journey so that you don't cause any harm one way or another. Yeah, I think drink was a good example there, James. You kind of briefly touched on it. And a lot of people, when they're maybe trying to give up alcohol, they go, you know, full on, I'm not going to touch it and whatever. And then it just takes one drink then and it's way back to where they started instead of just being, like you said, let's just hit that 90%. You know, I'm only 10% of the time I'm maybe going to have a drink and it's okay sometimes when I'm training to have a beer on a Saturday night, but I'm not going to go back to the full-on uh, having a drink every night, and I'm not going to say to myself that I can't ever have a drink again. Um, it's about finding that balance. You know, that's a, a brilliant example, Paul. And drinks, and drink, smoking, these things that we generally... I mean, I, I wouldn't regard drinking as a bad habit. I would regard drinking in excess as really destructive. You know, having the odd beer or what have you is perfectly fine. Um, whereas you might regard smoking as a bad habit because we know what the carcinogenic yeah, yeah. and you know the harm that that does um, <clears throat> but you tend to find people either do it to excess or don't do it at all it's particularly when it comes to smoking right because of how powerful the the, um, the addiction is 
And and that can be difficult because it only takes one lapse and before you know it, six months of no smoking and you're back to smoking 10 a day or whatever it might be. And mm. I think that's where the example is you can go on tilt. And you, you might even think, actually, as I say this, you wonder whether sometimes thought biases are gated behind the same things that causes addiction. So we're almost, can sometimes be addicted. If, I don't know if that's the right phrase, but we almost find comfort in having a thought bias because it gives us identity because we love binary you know we don't love ambiguity as human beings so the ability to go this is this and that is that really helps us make sense of the world when in reality everything's shrouded in ambiguity and gray so we get this kind of almost the world we're in with information overload and all that we sometimes just want to quickly make our minds up and stuff and move on rather than take that pause for thought pause to reconsider and then correct course and actions we're taking and maybe it's gated behind some of the same impulses that hit us with addictions. Maybe. I, I think there's an argument maybe that even bad habits offer us some level of security about who you are as a person and what you do and how you live your life. And uh, it can be quite difficult to break those bad habits, maybe because yeah. of that reason. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Well, you, sometimes we do identify with that, don't we? Yeah, yeah. And then for me, certainly, I think one of the most important ones was mind reading and just generally overthinking things and um, i've probably been a bit of a people pleaser generally in life and whilst i don't think i openly seek approval from people i do get hung up on ensuring that i'm always trying to put my best self out there and i'm quite sensitive to how people might feel based on my actions and the words that i use so in that sense i certainly do mind read too much and i generally assume that other people have the same sensitivities as me so there's maybe some egocentric thinking in there as well and when i do that i definitely can then feel hurt or disappointed when people do things that either feel thoughtless or selfish to me and i guess i end up probably resenting that when i see people who don't put in the same care as i feel that i do so i was wondering if you had any views on how you might change this thinking james is it about caring less what people think and I know that's an easy statement to make but it's more difficult to do or is it a, a self-confidence thing? Well it's a bit of both right one of the things I'd, I'd message you on this to say since we went through this one of the key things for me is, is and I'm going to read out what I wrote because it comes across as semi-arrogant to begin with but let me explain it is, is I care a lot less about what someone is thinking now and more about how I'm acting if I'm happy with how I'm acting then I can't be bogged down in their thinking for good or ill because I think it can be, the way you describe that, Paul, is you some, we sometimes worry about what others are thinking about you. And often, especially with social media, we're trying to present this perception of ourselves. Um, but sometimes it can be they're thinking great things about you or bad things about you. And I think we tend to err towards mind reading being, I hope they don't think bad things about me. And we try and mm-hmm. influence the mind reading by presenting a version of ourselves that isn't wholly true to who we are and um, maybe closer to the real version of us but it's not wholly true and what i meant by that was is look i need to set the standard for my behavior i need to try and be a good person who stands behind a series of moral value sets that in the round are contributing to the value and happiness of life of, of the people around me who i care for and i'm friends with and all that stuff and if i'm doing that some people no matter how much i do that will have a view of me that I wouldn't necessarily agree with and would probably hurt me to hear. But I can't change my behaviour to try and satisfy every single individual. But I can Mm. make sure that I'm behaving in a way that's authentic to who I am 
and why I have the family or the um, the friends around me because they're friends and family with me because of who I am and I should be more of that than trying to be something of not. So it's not that I don't care about what people think because I do care, but what I won't do is, is fundamentally change my behaviour as a result, but I'll accept that some people don't see me the way I want to be seen or see me in a way that I would wholly disagree with, but it's not down to me to try and change all their minds. So rather than worrying about the small minority of people who might think that way, I'm going to try and serve the large majority of people who I want to spend my time and effort on anyway. We did uh, an interesting exercise at the last XP, James. You had to go home, so it was on the Sunday or something, and it was just that, I think it come from Brenny Brown originally, but you get like a two-inch square of paper and you write down the people whose opinion really, really matters to you. So you can only fit, you know, three or four names on it and that's it. And that's what you should be focused on and that's what you should remind yourself of sometimes when you're worried about what other people are thinking, that there's only your partner, your friend, your parent or something that, that really matters. The rest of it ultimately doesn't. I fall into a kind of funny category. I'm not looking for approval from other people, but I feel like I don't want to be seen like I'm, I've let myself down by my own actions. And I guess I'm, I'm using other people as some kind of mirror there. So it's a kind of an awkward one for me because I, I, I don't feel like I'm actively out on social media to, to have people think I'm really cool or I'm a great runner or whatever. I've got a great life or anything. So it's a bit of an interesting one for me. Yeah, yeah, it is. But I think that's, it's back to that ambiguities where all the fun's at, right? Because it's not about is or isn't. They think they think this of me or they think that of me. It's more about actually what's where, where am I generally, you know? And am I comfortable where, where I'm at? And then if you are, then you'll attract and get the people around you you deserve. And if you're a horrible person who's running an organised criminal gang, then hopefully eventually things will catch up with you um, or you'll become Prime Minister. Or if you're... <laughs> a, <laughs> oh, oh, I know, that's controversial, yeah. Um, and, and, and all kidding aside, right, I, I, I genuinely think in the long run these things do take care of themselves. But we're, we're conditioned to react to moments because that's what causes thought biases to amplify the stress of a moment can cause us to lose sight of the, the longer term journey. So we become really um, orientated on acting on that moment as opposed to thinking forward and into the future and maintaining and managing relationships or maintaining and managing um, momentum because we, 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 we react to moments. And, and Paul, I would, if, if you're comfortable with I'd like to read what Pam Smith sent us. She sent us a, yep. a, a message on this. Um, and she was talking about musts and shoulds. Um, and she said, these episodes have really made her think, so she's specifically talking about must and shoulds and all or nothing. She says, I do this every day, not just in running, but as a mum, work and life, and I'm constantly must or should um, in the, the way I think. And then I sometimes feel bad or guilty if I fail and I overanalyze. And bear in mind, fail subjective in its own right. I am definitely more aware of it and I, now, and I know with the running side I've got better, thanks to piling. Um, but it's taken years though, and sometimes it can. She's put smile. I'm trying to, I'm trying to um, effectively demonstrate the emoji in the message. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And she says, and I think this is this is really good. It is okay to have an off run, but I still haven't got my head around the whole work mum runner life yet. It's work in progress. Um, and I would say it's okay to have an off run. It's also okay to have an off day, and an off moment. Um, we just can quantify our own right, but sometimes we can't quantify a relationship. What do you think of that? I think she's probably touching on a lot of things that are very common for people um, about 
the sacrifices that you have to make if you want to be involved in ultra running you've got to commit a fair amount of time right so like even if you're not training a huge amount you're probably talking six to ten hours a week or something if you're if you're training for a longer race so i think a lot of people carry some guilt then and and do some mind reading about well what must my family members think about this is it the right thing am i um sacrificing too much and is it okay for me to still push ahead with the things that i want in my life as well as caring about family and everything else as well so i think it's a tricky one and and we hear it quite a lot people trying to balance work their life and their training and their own goals as well as helping them feel like they're still moving things along from a family perspective too and i guess you you have ways of managing that as well james because your time's quite tight but um you maybe set aside set aside specific blocks of time that that's family time and it's not going to be interrupted and that kind of approach can really help i think a lot of people yeah i think that's um we use a phrase often from a a, i guess a work and a leadership point of view and called contracting um and it sounds a bit formal right but you might contract on the way you're going to interact and we use it sometimes from a coaching point of view so we contract with our runners to say you'll get your plan at the weekend you'll get a, a voice memo with it and maybe an explainer of some of the key things we'll reflect on the journey so far and we'll kind of try to look a wee bit further into the future um, with the, um, what we're focused in on, but we're kind of contracting on the relationship. And, and and in, I guess, constitutional terms, you use codified and uncodified, right? Codified being it's written down, uncodified being it's kind of made up through legal um, uh, evolution over years. So that's like Britain versus America is a good example. But you can yeah. kind of contract in a way with your family over this stuff. So when I contract on my running, I don't sit down with Louise and go, here's a contract, do you mind signing that? But actually we have a complete and utter symbiotic understanding about the fact that I'm going to get up most mornings very early and I'm going to run and I'm going to be back um, as the kids are getting up. Louise makes sure the kids are up um, and when I come back, Ewan's usually in the shower for his 30 minute shower that he has every morning, all of that. So we've kind of almost fell into that way of contracting that says, well, I'll do that then so that I'm not out at eight o'clock at night and we're, you know, we, we try to do things together as a family. Me and Louise walk the dog every night. The kids are like, we've got screens to look at. We're not interested. But you get that kind of contract. And, and sometimes when you think about the thought biases, I've got that level of contract with Louise because we've talked about it over time. We've talked about the implications, talked about my ambitions, talked about the family bit. And the most important word I said all the way through that was is we talked about it or we, we had some communication around it. Because if we didn't, I could maybe get up every morning thinking, Louise hates me getting up early because I interrupt her sleep. It's not very mm -hmm. fair, blah, blah, blah. And and if you don't talk about that, that mind reading starts to become a problem that's in your head only. So by having a conversation, we've removed any of that mind reading doubt. Um, I've removed any risk of overgeneralization. But also, I try to make sure that when I run it, run at different times or I'm on holiday, like this weekend's plan, for example, Paul, you've made sure that there's little morning running in fact there's no running on saturday and then sunday i'll do it in the afternoon when i go home so i'm not interrupting the weekend while we're away because i'm always conscious of trying to make that balance and that's part of the contract and where louise knows where appropriate i'll find the balance but sometimes if you don't have the conversation you'll just jump straight into one or two or three or all of the thought biases we've talked about so although contracting sounds a bit formal really it's have a conversation agree what works with you both, try it, and both of you be prepared to amend that because the reality is, is what you agree at the outset will probably not be 100% right. And if you're willing to amend and adapt that, 
you'll get to a good compromise that will stop you thinking one thing and acting another way as a result and none of none of you being satisfied mm-hmm. okay I guess then we'll probably have to start winding this up a little bit but um, for me something that we never really covered in the sprint specifically although I guess egocentric thinking probably did touch on it is that you can obviously assume everyone thinks the same way as you and, and you're, you've already talked about your relationship at home and making sure you're having that open communication because uh, you don't think the same way. You don't have the same values necessarily uh, all the time. Um, the sprints were really about understanding your own thinking. So we're all kind of self-based. But when you start to be a bit more aware of your own distortions of thought, you start to notice it in other people too. So how can you use that to make things better for you and potentially to help other people? Most people don't like things that could be seen as flaws pointed out to them. So <laughs> if you were in the heat of an argument, for example, with a partner, if you turn around and say, ah, you're, you're mind reading here, doesn't always go down particularly well. So I was interested to maybe have a conversation about that, how you start using that awareness and noticing it in other people, how you can use that to have better relationships so Martin sent us a really good message and it was talking about his realisation that his partner has these slightly different values and maybe a, a different outlook on certain things. And because of the podcast, he's been a wee bit more aware of it. And when these differences cropped up, he was able to take a step back and see it from a different angle, whereas maybe in the past, it would have been a point of conflict. And, and we all have these conflicts in our life, obviously. And I think relationships in particular we often argue for the same repeated reasons. We maybe don't realise it at the time. The details, the scenarios are always different, but maybe not being able to step back creates that flashpoint in the first place. So I wondered if you'd any views on that. Obviously, communication is going to be key, but um, how you can maybe use your newfound understanding of these thought biases, how you can use that when you spot it in other people? Well, it depends on the relationship you have with the other person. So I'll talk broadly, generically, for the, the purposes of this. But really, you have to judge a relationship with someone. Because some people you can be really direct with. You can go, hey, you're doing that mind-reading thing, and let me explain that to you. And you go, oh, thanks very much for pointing that out. And other people might go, what's that all about? Why is he telling me this? Especially if you feel you've got some sort of hierarchical superiority to them. Sometimes in a work context, that can be you're criticising your manager. Um, in a relationship context that could be your kid having a go at you for something and we tend to go well the balance of power in this relationship sits with me and I'm unhappy about you trying to circumvent that power yeah, yeah. because ultimately we, we all want power but my general number one rule for giving feedback um, sits across three really 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 important um, considerations one show vulnerability when you're giving that feedback so when you're giving the feedback don't go in and try and be a know-it-all and be judgy by how you give the feedback as in you're doing that mind reading thing and what that means you do is is you um you're just you're you're close-minded and it's annoying that's just judgy and it's actually quite direct and it's quite personal now remember a relationship matters about how you might posit that but you know in general whereas you might want to position it another way to go i've actually been doing some work on thought biases and what I've noticed about myself is sometimes I can do this and actually I can see you doing that just now. Let us let me talk you through what this means and may, maybe you can see that because this is what I learned. So you show vulnerability, but you also share. Um, and when you're giving that feedback and you're telling someone that they've got that thought bias, 
always do it in a way that you're trying to assist them and give them some actionable outcome. It won't always be welcome, right? But you're basically going, here's what I've seen. Here's why I think it's important I share it with you because actually I've seen it myself. You give some context so you're not judging them but rather you're you're supporting them and then go, and this is what I've done about that in the past as well. Might be useful for you. You know, it's up to you whether you take that on or not. But it can be really difficult because you... The, I tend to find when someone goes into one of these thought biases, and I've found I've found myself using this a lot. We heard um, Joan Crawford using examples earlier as well, but I tend to find that when you're in a thought bias, it tends to be in a stressful situation brought about by some sort of negative feeling. So, you know, thought biases, they, they do obviously crop up in more positive and more um, happy situations, if that's the right word, but actually they're probably more prevalent um, not 100%, but definitely more prevalent in stressful um, and high-stakes situations. So people are actually, you know, retreating towards a place of comfort. Kind of like what you talked about earlier, Paul. So mm. just be mindful of that so that when you're positioning it, you're actually trying to help them see greater perspective and help them out with that. But I've found myself as a result sometimes being even more patient with people because when I see the thought bias and I see them demonstrating it, that might be the most inappropriate time to point it out to them you might be better giving them some distance so they've had time to reflect yeah and then having a conversation with them and instead of saying i seen you doing this you just go just reflect on that conversation earlier on what what, what was your thoughts on it and sometimes they get to the conclusion themselves and then you can help them build on that by explaining the concept of the thought bias that you might have seen yeah i mean i think in some scenarios it's it's just not appropriate to to point that out to someone but if you can yourself take a step back and notice it in someone you can maybe understand why they're saying or doing the things that they're doing um, and maybe take a different approach so it's really useful in that there was a brilliant um it was a it was a brilliant uh, bit of advice i got from a guy it's a guy called martin newman right he's he's right into right into um mindfulness does the kind of proper buddhist retreats for a week at a time and doesn't do anything bar think and i'm like my god i couldn't do that for five minutes i'm like, already like oh my head's full of broken mm-hmm. glass but he described it as this, um, and, and I thought it was a brilliant way of bringing it to life, is, is when you're in a, the heat of a conversation with someone, and you may, it may even just be a WhatsApp conversation, or it could be a verbal conversation, or an email conversation, when something causes your hackles to raise, um, where you feel you might react, and you might react off the cuff, which is you starting to then maybe throw a thought bias reaction in, like you're going to overgeneralize because of the way they've communicated to you, you're going to say something you might regret, you might, you know, you might be egocentric going, who are you to talk to me like that, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. He says, imagine when you start to feel that tension rising and you imagine it's like your belly's expanding with gas and you're standing with a, um, a, 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 a match and you have a choice between putting a pin in that belly and letting the gas go or lighting the match and exploding. What would you do if that was the outcome? You know, you were either going to explode or you were going to relax and get a better outcome. You would, in the main, always put a pin in it. But we often, just because of the way we're wired, get defensive and just be basically because of an explosion. And he calls it the spark before the flame. Um, Are you going to put the spark and cause a flame or are you just going to put a pin in it and just defuse the situation? He says, in the hardest of all things for anyone is to be the person that calms down a situation because we naturally want to defend our position. Yeah, yeah. 
I've heard I've heard something similar around that same period, James. When there's something that feels abrasive or it gets your heckles up a little bit, that that's that's your opportunity for some growth for yourself. You know, there's something inside of you that's making you want to react and and like that match, and it's an opportunity to step back a little bit and see if you can change the way you approach things and the way that you react to people. Yeah, interesting. Good. Oh, mate, we we've been speaking for like forty minutes or something like that. Is that already? Did you have any other? Did you get any other written feedback that you wanted to share at all? I've done all the audios, I think. Well, I got I got quite a bit of written feedback from lots of people just generally commenting on the um, generally commenting on the podcast himself. There seemed to be a lot of people really enjoy the sprints. Um, they enjoyed the, the the makeup of them, the fact that they were quick, and a lot of people seem to enjoy listening to them at the start of a run. Um, I got um, I got one from Alistair Elder though that I thought was quite good just because um, just because Alistair's you know he's spent a lot of time working in quite high powered jobs does a lot of training himself you know so he's a guy who's always balancing the stress of life the stress of work and the stress of training and he said this is what he said so it's more like a general comment than anything else but I liked it he says it's been really good they're more like aid stations than a sprint for me um, he says oh, they could be a wee bit longer um. And he likes it when the two of us are getting together, like we're talking just just um, doing here. But what he says is is that the advice has been great so far to help people climb out. And 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 he's had a couple of instances, uh, sorry, a couple of examples himself of that. And I guess the point the point he's making there is is that you know the, we're trying to push the format of this. We're trying to learn. I think we've shown a lot of vulnerability because he, he talks about the fact that we're trying to change the format. There's a million podcasts out there talking about running. And actually, at times during these sprints, Paul, I've felt a bit exposed. As yeah. in, am I bluffing it? Am I, um, I'm, mm-hmm. you know, that classic imposter syndrome? Because yeah. I'm not a specialist in any of these things. No. But then I, I made peace with that because I was starting to overgeneralize. And it was really reassuring to hear some of the comments and things that we got. Because our job isn't to educate people deeply on these subjects. No. All we're trying to do is to get people to think a bit more. Think so about it. Have some conversations. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah. What about you? Anything okay. else from you? Uh, no, I think I had most of the feedback there. Um, it was good to get to hear from people who are, who have been listening to them. Um, I find the podcast world. I think it was slightly different when we started, James. You you tend to you don't get a huge amount of feedback on a podcast, so it probably is that people are listening and enjoying or taking something from it. It's just you probably go into that mind reading phase. Um, it's a, almost like a bit of a dead end sometimes. You put the content out there. It's not like an Instagram post where you'll get comments and you can get a, a good feel for um, how people have taken things um, because there isn't like a central place for podcasts anymore, obviously. You can listen on 50 different channels. Um, so yeah, it was good to get some more views into the podcast and sit down and have that conversation, I think, and hopefully we'll do more. So I think we had a conversation we're probably going to do another series of sprints aren't we and we'll we'll probably keep them the similar kind of format either four to six shorter sprints and then we'll have a longer conversation after yeah i think i think 46 is a nice number um um and just helps make that micro season run along really quickly and before you know it, we'll have two or three subjects and and i guess one of the big things is is what we want to see from this is, is that this can become a resource you can go back to time and again you know it's like i'll refresh myself on that mind reading subject or that all or nothing subject um so yeah we're open to i guess suggestions about what we talk about you and i have got a long list of possible 
um, yep. subjects based on both our own experiences and the, the things we've talked about together in the past. But um, I think there's an almost unlimited library of things we can do. But if this works, then let's just keep at it. Cool. Okay. I think we'll finish up there, James. Thank you so much for your time. If you took anything from the podcast, then please give us a shout on social media. It helps us to gauge what content is working and keeps us motivated to do more. We're trying to connect with a great community of people who are keen, like us, to make the most of what we do and how we interact in this world. As a community, we can build the belief and support for us all to take on bigger and bolder challenges. From a coaching perspective, please get in touch if it's something that you're interested in. We really do have a fantastic team of coaches who are really genuinely fantastic people and every week I see them supporting and motivating athletes like this weekend was just crazy. We had so many races and so many athletes doing amazing things. Uh, So if you fancy being part of Team Pylon and you're happy to put the work in, then we're waiting to hear from you. You can get in touch with us just through the website. I'm Paul Giblin. I'm James Stewart. And you've been listening to the Pylon Ultra Pod. Boom. We get a boom. I was waiting for it. Yeah, we get a boom. Boom, everybody. Uh Alright. Right, Uh, right, we'll stop it there and we'll be.